everybody. This is Dr. Chad Hawk with Matt Dowd, and we are Renegade Atlas, charting a new path for your life. So, Matt, we are on our fourth episode. Well, we've got one two-parter in the, in right. the books. Um, so, I guess it's maybe fifth uh, episode where we've been discussing the idea of strife and oppression and racial issues and you know how I feel about it. It ultimately boils down to sin. Um, but how do we make things right? How do we hear people? How do we listen to people with new ears and experience the world differently? And that's where we've been going. And it's, it's been an amazing little walk we've been on so far. Um, and today we're going to continue that. Yeah. I was uh, starting to talk, tell you in our little show prep that I've just felt really compelled to listen these during this time. Um, not that I don't feel like I should ever speak my opinion, but just something about it has struck me with the way things are right now and that I just need to shut my mouth for the most part and listen to and get some other perspective, you know, mm -hmm. especially from people who are part of other communities, other racial backgrounds, other ethnicities, you know. And so that's what we've been trying to do in these last few weeks. And it's been, I think it's been amazing. Like it's been great conversation. It's been really eye opening. Um, there's no other way to get other perspective than to engage with somebody who has a different perspective. That's true. <laughs> you know, so um, yeah, so it's been great. I'm looking forward to today. And today, why don't you yeah. introduce our, our guest for today? Yeah. So today we have Maurice Cowley on with us. Yeah. Hey, Maurice. He's a friend of mine from back in Portland. He still lives in Portland. Um, and he's just, number one, he's just a great guy. We had some really good times hanging out together. Cool. But he's also a really deep thinker um, and, a, you know, a man of high character and integrity and high intellect as well. And so I just, I'm really glad he chose to come on today to give us his perspective because sure. he has spent some time living this experience and thinking seriously about, you know, about it and, and figuring some, some things out. So Maurice, welcome to the show, man. It's great to have you on. Great to be here. Yeah. Well, so, you know, like we said, pre-show, I just kind of want to invite you to share with us what's sort of top of mind for you right now you know, what's heaviest on your heart or whatever, like, where do you want to begin? Let's open the floor to you. Well, um, kind of as we were talking about and getting ready for this kind of interview and this podcast, I'm thinking through, like, what are the things, just what, what has my experience been like this time around? Like, this isn't a new experience for me. Like, people have, like, black folks have been targeted and murdered and, uh, that there's been uproar around that. And so like, I've been riding this wave for years. And so um, what is it that is unique about this time? And I think that like, I'm fairly optimistic as a person. And so even though it can be hard to stay optimistic when it's like, oh, again, we're here, um, I'm gonna often look for what's good. And one of the things that I have felt this time around that has been really good has been there, there's a, this intangible quality about the conversations that I'm having, particularly inside of the church. Um, I work in the church, I, I love the church, and I feel like the people who I'm interacting with are asking great questions, they're sitting at the table to hear a little bit longer. Um, I think they're listening to a wider um, breadth of opinions and perspectives, and that feels like, 
it feels like I can hold on to a little bit of hope that um, that this isn't that maybe this time it's not just like a two three week cycle and then we're back to life as normal. You know, um, mm. that to me that's been kind of the a, the different quality that this this experience has brought up as opposed to any of the plethora of others that I've experienced in the last 30 some years of my life. Right. So it's, yeah, it's definitely not new, but that's really encouraging to me to hear you say that <clears throat> actually, you know, that you feel some hope and encouragement um, because it seems like that's been one of the things that's been missing. Yeah, that, that has been missing. And I think that um, what, I think the reason that it's kind of been a little bit more hopeful is that um, the this isn't going to be solved quickly. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of heavy lifting that has to happen and like a lot of really hard and deep work um, looks at kind of really firmly entrenched ways of thinking and being and doing just about everything in life. And so, like I have no illusions that the conversations we're having are going to like get us to the end of racism by the end of summer. Like <laughs> COVID and racism will end yeah. at the same time. Like that's, yeah, not, that's exactly that's that's like, 2020. That's, let's just be done with it all. <laughs> <laughs> like that's not, I don't like, that's not the hope, but I think that what does give me hope is that um, it, there has, there's been in general less of a, get over your hurt feelings vibe to the conversations. You know what mm. I mean? Like that mm -hmm. has been the, that's been the vibe um, for a long time. I remember around the time of Michael Brown, I, um, I'm a writer is one of, it's one of the things that I do as I process. And I was writing that like, one of the things that it was so hurtful is that people were really quick to say, okay, yeah, that sucked and it's hard and now you need to get over it so we can move on with the rest of life so we can do all the other things that need to, to be done. Mm -hmm. And I, I've not got a sense of that in the circles that I'm in. And I'm sure that there are people who are like racism, oh my gosh, why are we doing this again? But my, <laughs> yeah. my vibe has been like, no, I, like your pain and your suffering is real and it, I'm, I am feeling it in a visceral way so I want to hear more about it. Like I want to get to the depths of what you're thinking and feeling and experiencing and identify with you. I want to lament with you so that we can, like once we're done with that, once we collectively are done lamenting, we can start building something different. Right. It's like sort of an acknowledgement that we are in the boat together to some extent, like we need to be and we are and I know there's like a difference between your experience and my experience, you know, based maybe solely on the color of our skin, you know? Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't be in it together, at least in a way, in a way of starting to understand each other and move forward together. Right. So that's also really encouraging to me to hear that. Um, okay. So maybe would you share a little bit about just your experience, you know, as a African American man, Portland, Oregon, growing up, living there, like, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I grew up in Portland. I grew up in inner city Portland. Um, you're, I grew up on right outside of the 
prim primarily black high school. I'm the only majority black high school in Portland. Um, well, it was until recently. And um, in neighborhood, in the Albina neighborhood, um, it was a kind of a, the in the hood, I'm very like, very, it's what you would imagine looking at like a, a film, of the inner city, you know what I mean? Like there was crime and drugs and all of that. There was like lots of rough things that were happening, um, but also like lots of beauty. And, um, but as I was growing up, my, my dad is black, my mom is white. And my dad um, was very much into, you have to get your education, you have to improve your life according to, um, I don't, he wouldn't articulate it this way, but it was a very like white supremacist way of thinking. Like the closer you are to your mm -hmm. average white dude, the better life is going to be for you. And so um, that was really ingrained in me. Like we didn't talk to our black neighbors who, um, we didn't go to the, the black school. Like it was like, you, your skin might be black, but you are not going to be that. You are going to be something entirely other. Um, and so, I grew up really internalizing this idea that black is bad. And so I have to like, this is a hurdle that I have to overcome. Um, wow. And it took me a, a long time to kind of start, start, I didn't start until high school figuring out the like, oh, wait a second, actually like who I am, like my skin doesn't, that doesn't mean bad. It means it just means different, you know? And so to start really figuring out like, what does it actually mean to be black? Why, why black is what it is in our country? Like it was a long journey of starting to figure that out and really unpack some of like the racism and white supremacy that I had kind of internalized. Mm. Um, yeah, that was yeah. great. Wow. Yeah, how many like, and, you know, amongst the black community, how, like, how many people do you feel like have that type of mindset? Like, or, or that's kind of, you know, taught to them? I don't know that I can speak for a ton of people or even put a number or percentages on it. Yeah. But I will say that um, the way that our systems are set up, like, that's what it is. Like, we are, like success and value for people in America really does depend on how well closely you can approximate whiteness or normal. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that there, there are people who the move rather than to buck that system is to say, okay, this is the reality of where I live. And so let me try to play that game to get ahead. Um, right. It, it happens. So I'm going to ask a couple of questions here because um, back where I used to practice in Virginia, I had a number of friends, very, very close friends who were, who had um, biracial marriages and the way that they would raise their children was interesting because it played out differently. Mm -hmm. um, one guy, his name's Rock, real I mean, he's a basketball player, big guy, you know, and his wife is like five, two, <laughs> you know, and, and the way they raised their kids was interesting because it was like this amazing, like more metamorphosis of, of, 
like this part was very typically white and this part was very, very typically black. And then another couple, Rob and Sandy, um, uh, it was mainly a, a, a more white style of, mm-hmm. of, of weight raising their kids. And for you growing up with um, a, a white mom and a black dad, which uh, the, the question that I've, uh, I know was asked to Rob and Rock and Sandy and Megan was, what are your kids? Are they white? Are they black? They're 50, 50 actually. Um, genetically you're more of your mom than you are of your dad. So it's because you've got your mitochondria DNA is from your mom. So you're, you're, you're genetically more like your mom. Mm -hmm. How does that shake out? And it was interesting. No one ever answered that question. And so how, how do you identify yourself? Do you identify yourself as black? Do you identify yourself as white or do you identify yourself as a person? You know, how how do you, for you, how do you identify? For me, I identify as black. Um, I think race being a non-genetic construction, it's like, it's what people perceive of me, right? So if I put on a form, which I can very well do and be completely accurate, if I checked white on the form and showed up for a job interview, (laughs) uh, you lied to me, you're not white. And so Mm. I'm, I'm black. You know what I mean? Like if I walk down the street, no one is going to assume that I'm a white dude. And I, and I think for me, it's actually really helpful to, to hold on to that, um, to that identity because it is informative on everything I'm going to encounter. That when I struggle to think that if I struggle and be like, well, I should be experiencing life differently because I'm mixed. Like that's a waste of my time to me. Um, I'm just going to say, okay, this is who people are going to see of me. It's how I see myself when I look in the mirror. Um, I'm, I'm a black dude. And it, mm-hmm. I think once I can, for me, once I kind of accepted, okay, I, I am black, I belong in this group, um, it is helpful in starting to piece through my experiences and make sense of them. Um, because then it, there's less of like, this um there's less confusion you know what i mean and i do like i love and appreciate and cherish my mom and all that she has given to me i love like kind of her family um, or my family on her side and kind of the heritage that they have passed down to me but my experience in the world is my internal experience might be shaped that way but my external experience will never be shaped by that um, and so gotcha. sure. I'm black. Right. So, yeah, like I think of the verse, you know, like man looks on the outward and God mm-hmm. looks at the heart, right? We look, we see what we see and mm-hmm. unfortunately typically judge based on that. Okay. So <clears throat> then what would you, you know, what would you want other people, particularly the white community to know that maybe it's hard for us to know, right? Um, like based on your experience or based on how you see what's going on. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm going to add something to that because you've got a unique perspective. You're kind of straddling both fences as far as your, your childhood and the way you were raised. Mm-hmm. So you've got a unique experience compared to some people who may yeah. be very focused in one uh, culture when they grow up. Yeah. Um, 
So I think the thing that we, I would want people to know is that the quicker we can accept some of the fundamental truths of our country and of the systems and society that we've set up um, and just kind of accept that this is true and this is real um, and that I've not, the, the, that black folks aren't lying to me about what they experience. Um, the quicker we accept that and accept the role that we play in perpetuating that system, the quicker we can start to move forward, right? So um, you, you reference like, I grow up straddling these two lines. Like I grow up being taught that the white supremacist system we have is acceptable, it's good. I don't need to question it, it just is what it is. And so if I buy in and work hard, I will get, like if I do A, then B, C, and D will come my way, right? If I go to school, I keep my nose clean, I will get a great education, I'll get a job, I'll start making money, and then nobody will bother me because I'm black. That's like, it's not, that's not necessarily the truth, right? So I had to, I had to learn that, A, that that's not the truth. I had to learn that, um, like, the, when our country is founded, it's, like, written into our code that who I am isn't a person. And all of the systems around education, around law, like, law enforcement, housing, like, everything is built to, it's kind of stacked against people who look like me. So, okay, cool. I, once I can accept that, then I can start to see the ways that that has shaped my experience. And more importantly, I can start to unmantle or dismantle those ways of thinking in myself. And I can start looking at the places that I'm, I'm participating in the world and start to dismantle that particular way of thinking in my sphere. And it, it mm. doesn't, and I think the other thing that I would want people to know is that, um, participating in the system that we are born into during the time that we don't know about it is it is what it is but once you learn something different like from then on that is the responsibility that you have to take like matt can't take responsibility for being born white he didn't choose that matt can't take responsibility for the way that his parents raised him the school that he went to and some of the practices that that school might have had like that's not Matt's responsibility. But the second that Matt learns, hey, let's examine some of the truths and some of the ways that these systems impact other people, like then Matt has a choice, right? How do I interact with that going forward? And like, go, you know what I mean? Like, right. take that, take the lesson and then let's start to learn, let's start to see, and let's start to unravel some stuff. So let's, let's take that thread and go with it here. You know, and I'd like to hear from you, like some particulars, like things that you've learned or that, you know, like mm -hmm. as part of, um, well, so let's go there. But first I want to say something about it. And what I think you're touching on is possibly a reason why it feels like it has more substance this time around, like why everybody is paying attention and it feels to all of us like it might like we might engage with it rather than it being like a two week phenomenon and new cycle. And then, you know, back to life as normal because, and this is my experience. I feel like we are starting to wake up to the truth of our history. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not swinging all the way to the side of like, oh, well, America is bad then, you know, or anything like mm-hmm. that. It's that there was evil and bad stuff present along with all of the good. Mm-hmm. And I think that we've wanted to have this narrative like America was just all always only good. <laughs> you know and there was and there and like we need to make it good again and it's like it 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 is great it's amazing america is an incredible country and i love living here yeah (laughs) you know and i am for america but also i think that this whole awareness and confession and like truth telling about where we have all been and what has Mm -hmm. happened is really important instead of denying denying and you know trying to pretend it all didn't happen so i'm i'm on board with you on that one um, and I'd, yeah, I'd love to talk about like, t- for example, I moved to Kansas city three years ago. That was the first time I ever learned about Juneteenth. Yeah. And I learned it on a plaque. I was in KCK in Kansas city, Kansas, which is more of a minority ethnic diverse part of town. And there's some stuff there about Juneteenth. I was like, what is this? I don't even know what it is, you know? And it's like what you're talking about my upbringing that wasn't included. Yeah. So so yeah, I mean, does anything pop to mind? Like what type of things in history have you learned about or, you know, that would be helpful to to talk about right now? Um, I will say this, that just kind of to reiterate something that I kind of said, but maybe didn't say very clearly that this, like our systems are really designed the the kind of the white supremacy in America is designed to be really invisible. Oh, oh, can I, can I, sorry. That's the other thing I wanted to ask you to do. Would you define white supremacy the way you're using it? Because I think that term could have a lot of different meanings for a lot of different people. Just, yeah. What does that mean when you say it? Um, White supremacy. Like, I think you, when we hear white supremacy, we think like the dude marching with the swastika, like kill everyone. (laughs) Right. That is like, that's a, that's a very vocal and radical segment of it. But when, when I talk about white supremacy, it's that when our country was built, the best thing you could be was a wealthy landowning white man. Like that is the apex of humanity to our founding fathers. And, um, and so our, the system that we live in is kind of stacked in favor of that one particular thing. And it tells everyone, the closer you get to that ideal, the, the better you are. And so just the supremacy is the best, like supreme above all, right? right. And okay. so, um, so that, like, that's what our country is built on. It's not on, I mean, yes, that radical racialized KKK and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's, that's kind of woven in there, but that's not, that's like small, Mm -hmm. that's small potatoes compared to what I think what I'm talking about when I say white supremacy. Right. Um, I would, I would hope that most people would not readily identify themselves with the KKK brand of white supremacy. Right. I hope so. but I, but I think this, the other kind of white supremacy is that that's invisible. Like we don't, we don't often see that and name that. I think because um, often white culture is just viewed as normal, quote unquote, right? Like this is just normal. And so if we accept it as normal, then we don't have a, a category for some of the things that our black brothers and sisters talk about. Like I got, um, yeah. It's, so anyway, it's just like, mm-hmm. that's good. That's helpful. I just, yeah, I just wanted to, <laughs> you know, get that explicit 
clarified there for everybody. Um, and then that system is designed to be invisible. And so we, it's, we reward people and kind of punish people without ever naming that it is because of A, B, and C. Like it's because mm -hmm. you are not approximating what we think is the best good. We don't necessarily name that. Um, and so um, that impacts things like the history that we teach. It impacts, the, like I said, the way that we do school, the way that we do work, the way we do neighborhoods, all of it. And so um, I don't know that I can point you to like learn these things. Mm -hmm. Rather, what is more meaningful is when people can say, okay, I'm going to examine the history that I've been taught and I'm going to look for a different perspective. That you learned about Juneteenth three years ago when you moved to Kansas City, like, um means that and that like i'm looking across the internet on juneteenth and um the tulsa uh rally and people are like i didn't know about black wall street i didn't know about juneteenth those are like the two things that people are like i didn't know any of this mm -hmm. that sh i think that that should cause us to then go back and say okay what are the perspectives that i'm missing like what didn't i learn in the history that i was taught because there's a lot of stuff that I didn't learn and had to go back and find primary sources to learn from, even secondary sources to learn from, like, le like learning about the Great Migration, learning about um, like our housing policies, learning about even where the concept of race comes from. Like race didn't exist for the longest. Like that is, um, that is a, a, an American invention, right? And so like learn, it's not solely American, but, I, it plays out in really crazy ways in America. So like learn history from perspectives that are not your perspective. And and like, and don't necessarily throw out your perspective of history either, but tr like meld those two things together. Like we learned some really cool, very honest and cool things about Americans and where we came from. We also learned some nonsense. So like marry those things together. Right. And I don't mean to say either that like we need to have all the exact specific information either. You know, it's like it is it is helpful mm -hmm. to learn some of that stuff, but I think it's sort of like what it all adds up to. Yeah. You know, like what you've been talking about, the perspective that we all sort of operate from. So mm -hmm. so um when you look across our culture today, mm -hmm. and we'll speak specifically about US culture. Yeah. Um when you look at our culture today, what do you see as uh, a moment where there can be an everlasting change? What does that actually mean? How does that play out? What, if you were to put legs on that and get it somewhere, what does that mean? Because mm -hmm. I, I don't think I have a, a, an appreciation for what that is. Yeah. Um, because I'm just weird. I, I freely admit that. Um, and, and I'm not saying one way or another. It's not about a way. It's just I, where I come from. Mm -hmm. So for you, what does that mean? Where does this change actually move forward? Yeah. Um, I think that one of the most important changes that we can make Particular, well, okay, that we can make 
is to um, shift from, okay, let me think, how do I want to say this? Mm-hmm. When I think about like the, the way that everything has been set up, I, I don't think that there's any short way to do it other than deconstruct and reconstruct together. But I think that in order for us to get there, we particularly white folks, it would be helpful to shift our thinking away from I'm not racist to I am an anti-racist, right? Like if I, if I think like I'm not racist, it's easy for me to look at all of the people who are doing racist things and be like, I'm not like them. So therefore I am not a racist. Like I didn't, um, I didn't kill George Floyd and I think that's wrong. Therefore I am not racist. Um, but because this way of being and thinking and doing is so ingrained in the stream of America's life, like if I'm just going to like, if I'm just going to sit in a boat in a stream, guess where I'm going? I'm going where the stream wants to go. But in order for me to get somewhere upstream, I have to row and paddle. I have to work against actively. And so um, that's why I think, why I say it's really important for us to tell the truth about where we come from and who we are, the things that are built into our way of thinking. Because once I do that, then I have to start doing the work to unpack those things, right? Like, so shifting from I'm not actively racist and therefore I'm okay to start thinking about I have been shaped by a system that is racist, a system that is white supremacist, and I've been shaped by that. I've been discipled into this way of thinking. And in order for me to be different, I have to examine all of it and I have to like actively choose to walk it back. Like I have to do that too, right? I was I was raised in America, I went to school here, like this is the way that I was indoctrinated. And once um, once I learned it, I have to keep working at it. It is an all day, everyday thing. Because um, yeah, it's an, it's an all day, everyday thing. So let me play devil's advocate for a moment yeah. on this issue. So in a culture, mm-hmm. um, you tend to have the people who comprise the majority of the culture as the dominant driving force. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. pretty Mm -hmm. self-explanatory. When you go to a different culture, you, if you're the minority and you, if you're Italian and you go to um, Japan, you Mm -hmm. expect to be different. Yeah. Right. But that is different than somebody who is three generations, Italian people who grew up in Japan, Mm -hmm. you know, even though they're, I guess Japan's a horrible example because you're not considered Japanese. (laughs) (laughs) That's just one of the quirky natures in a way it makes it very free and you know exactly where you stand. You don't stand there (laughs) because you can't, you're not Japanese. You're not Japanese, Italian or Italian. No, you're not. (laughs) You're just Italian still. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Uh You cannot be considered Japanese. That's a horrible example. Um, It's an enlightenment. Yeah. Um, so at where, where do, where does the idea of the Hispanic culture, the, um, the European culture, the, uh, the African cultures, the Asian cultures, it, uh, where, 
where does this work itself out so that each culture can be respected and honored? And yeah. th- that's the devil's, devil's advocate part. Where do we actually make, how do we make that work when yeah. the, the largest minority in the United States is Hispanic? Mm-hmm. Um, like there's, oh, you there's know, the largest minority, minority group. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And how do we, how do we make that out? You know, how do we work that out? Because Cinco de Mayo, <laughs> that doesn't cut it, <laughs> you know, having a margarita and a taco on Cinco de Mayo, that, that doesn't do anything. Well, like Cal was talking about last week on the episode we haven't published yet, even he wants to be able to go to a, a Mexican restaurant or a Peruvian restaurant and have good Peruvian food. Like he doesn't want it all right. just to blend into exactly. America. Exactly. You know? and so I think a great question is like, how do we do America where it is this cultural melting pot, but also retain what's beautiful about everybody's culture because we don't just want to eradicate all of that so that but that also creates some separation or like some distinction you know it's inherent in like i want to you know we want to hang on to some of that so it's tough it's a tough balancing act and it's not the dis i think that it's not the distinction that's bad right like i should i could absolutely be able to appreciate somebody else's culture what it but it but that doesn't necessarily exist here I think we can do, it's really easy to do with food, right? Like with things that are impersonal. It is so easy to go to like a taqueria and be like, yes, this is beautiful. I love it. It's amazing. Right. Without actually ever talking to a Hispanic person. (laughs) I can can go to an Ethiopian restaurant and be like, this food is amazing and lovely. Oh, it's beautiful. Like I love eating with my hands. Why don't we do this here? Um, But what is much more challenging is to look at the way we do things and to say there are other ways of doing this that are equally valid. So when I, um, when I, I spent five years as a classroom school teacher and I taught high school English and um, one of the practices that some of my teachers in anti-racist work kind of walked me through was decentering white dominance in my classroom. And so it says that like, when you think about a classroom, a lot of us instantly have a picture of what a healthy functioning classroom looks like. The teacher is up front, students are sitting quietly listening to the teacher give instruction until such a time as the teacher says, talk to each other or talk to me. Like we're kind of dominated by like bell to bell teaching. Like there's a lot that we can put on that. But that, our system of education is set up as a white supremacist system. So if I then step into that and say, not everyone in my classroom functions that way, my, um, some, of my, some of my students, their culture, they value collaborative work rather than individual work. Some of my students value um, talking and interacting rather than sitting and listening. Um, like what, is, what, do, what are the cultures that are here? What do they value? And how do we come together to say, okay, we're sharing this space, so how do we make this space a space that works for each of us, that we can maintain our um, maintain ourselves, maintain our identities, and be in this space together? And so then it becomes less of a melting pot and more of a salad, right? Like, I don't, I'm not trying to get soup. I'm trying to get like, we got some greens and some tomatoes and peppers and all of it, and it's just like that. I can still appreciate each individual flavor and each what they're bringing, and so that what we i think what how we move there is we take apart this idea of normal and um and say okay what is it that we're all bringing to the table Mm -hmm. Um, 
my yeah like an, maybe an example of this that I, that I experienced at my uh, in my previous house so I had a, the family next to us they um they were uh it was a family from Mexico and they had um a family and her sister and brother-in-law and I think and a few other family members that were all living together in a house then we had like our nuclear family plus a few extras that would come live with us from time to time and then um next to us was a single man who was white and like if if i look at my my mexican neighbors they had all the cars they threw like these crazy fun like parties for their family and they would celebrate everything that they did like first baptisms it's the weekend let's get together <laughs> like nice they yeah. were, and they would always invite us over so they were like loud and fun and it was great um we didn't do that but if i'm like the way i do things is normal and right and good then maybe i'm calling the police because they're being loud at 11 o'clock every night right um like i have to like say okay hold on my i value x y and z their value is something different so let me I, I have to know them i have to understand what they value and i have to be willing to say okay i i get what you value what you value is important it is not worse than what i value it's just different and so i'm gonna i, I can live and let you have and let you do the things that you do because i'm not trying to force you to be like me and mm. i think that's how we we do this in america is we have to be able to to recognize different value systems and create space for the different value systems to speak into how we do things and um instead of expecting everyone to have the same value system because that's that's not going to work that'd be boring anyway super <laughs> this is making me think are you familiar with jamie winship and donna Mm -hmm. You know about them, right? They, yes. they do a thing called Kingdom Circles, and they did a video about, I don't know if you're familiar with that concept at all, but it's, they did this video using food as the example, and it was like, I'm not going to go way into it, but it's just is people, you know, making a salad or making an omelet or making mm -hmm. soup, you know, with all these different ingredients, and like the ingredients all retain their characteristics, yeah. but then they're just put together and to make something even better when they're all together. It's cool, visual. So, and so I feel like what you're describing is the kingdom. I mean, is there, is there any other way to do it than to get back to, you know, Jesus and who he is and what he, like what he has for us? I mean, you work in, you know, you're a follower of Jesus, you work in a church, you talk yeah. about this stuff, like what's your view of where Jesus fits into all of this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, thank you for asking that. Um, I think that, Jesus has to be above all of it. Like the kingdom of God has to be above all of this. That in, I think when we get down to it here in the world, we are trying to kind of hold on to power, hold on to influence. And the kingdom of God says, no, let go of power and influence. Power is to serve and to love and to care for the people around you. Like, the greatest commandment, love God, love your neighbor. That's Jesus, the son of God, washes his disciples' feet. He serves people nonstop and invites us to be that kind of, I'm going to set down my power for the sake of another. Like that is what justice is. And as 
followers of God. That's where I think we need to step into. Um, and we get to critique our culture and critique people to the left and to the right who, who miss that mark. Like justice is great. Like work for social justice, change what we do and how we do it to, to value human lives. Um, and we, people might be like, well, that's awfully like left of you. But, um, I also think that God calls us to live lives that, um, reflect his best good. And, um, you might call that moral lives and people are like, well, that sounds awfully right of you. (laughs) Both of those things have to be true. Like we have to be doing both of those things. If we're going to be about bringing God's kingdom here to earth, which is what we've been invited into. The Lord's prayer is your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if we're going to live into that, like we have to be willing to do things the Jesus way, which isn't hold on to my power or even for me, a minority to say, okay, I don't want you to have power. I want me to have power. Mm -hmm. Like not, we have to all be about sacrificing and loving and uplifting each other so that we get to that we can be family together. Amen to that. So where I, um, I shake out on this is that if we are stewarding our relationships with others, because we see them as an, as a part of the body of Christ or somebody made in the image of God, mm-hmm. then the way we interact and comport and conduct ourselves with everyone should be done at the high, with the highest regard. Mm-hmm. And when that doesn't happen, that's when things don't make sense to me. Yeah. Well, and, and that's true for policies. It's true for laws. It's true for uh, whatever it is, you know, a church or an organization, an infrastructure, whatever it is, it's when that system gets broken. Mm-hmm. that's when pain is, is the natural result of that is pain and hurt and, mm-hmm. and shame and oppression and racism. In fact, one of the, the, in, the important distinctions about racism is it's when you hold power over another yeah. person, power is the key to racism. Otherwise it's just discrimination or prejudice. Yeah. And, and racism is when you, create this authority relationship over another person. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because they have a, a different skin color than you. Yeah. And when I think when those systems break and harm occurs, like it requires us to be humble in addressing the harm and not saying like, well, I didn't mean to hurt you. And so you should get over it. It says, no, like what I, I understand that whether I meant it or not, what happened and what is happening is harming somebody else. And so in humility, I can say, okay, what I am doing is harming you. I, I see that. I acknowledge it. I, I need to change. And then not just to say, I need to change, so let me figure out how to change, but to just to be engaged and say, okay, how do, how do you need me to change so that I'm not harming you, right? Like that, that kind of like reconciliation that's got to be the goal, but we can't get to reconciliation without acknowledging the harm that is and has happened. Yeah, confession. It's so, like step one into any healing process, you know? 
So maybe this is a, a good question now. Maybe not. Um, what is the harm that's been done? That's a very serious question. You know, that's not a flippant. I don't mean that in a flippant way. I mean that to the core issue, what is the harm that's been done? Yeah. The harm that's been done in my estimation is that the way what our system is built on, what our country is founded on, says that I am not a person, that I am less than a person. And so you have hundreds of years of American history functioning with that at its heart. And the things that have changed over the course of time are things that give lip service to my humanity. Like ending slavery gives lip service to, oh, okay, I guess we can't own people anymore. And, but then is immediately replaced by um, the prison system, replaced by other unjust measures that continue to tell me that I'm not a person. And then, so that's that idea that people who are black are not people in the same way that white folks are people, that has not changed fundamentally. Um, and it's, and so like you, that's the harm and that is harmful to people who are white and that is harmful to people who are black. And then you layer on top of that, this, um, kind of the stratification of people economically that like, um, so I, I could get into the weeds with that, but at its, at its basis is that people who look like me are not people and that is harmful. That is the harm upon which all the other harms are built. Which to me sounds like an identity issue. Like that's the core, like you're saying I am or I am not right. That's the phrase that you're using. And I think you na- you're nailing it. It's like, it's become an identity that everyone has accepted that though somehow, <clears throat> yeah, like white is better than black or, male is better than female or all that type of stuff. It's just like, this is the way it is. And it's a, it's a false identity. It's false. And I think it's not often said, like, I feel like if I'm imagining myself as being a white person, hearing me say that I would be like, Whoa, no, I think that my black, I have black friends. I think they're people. And I'm not like, it's not necessarily an individual thing. It is like, this is a, it is a collective and corporate like issue that we don't often, that we haven't done work to name and to rectify as a collective. So here's a big question that I have. Can we address this issue on the systemic level, on the collective level, Or do we need to, and I'm thinking about the Jesus way, you know, we've been talking about how he operated and what, like he seemed to to operate pretty much on the individual level, almost exclusively, right? Transforming hearts. And it's, I'll just put put this out there as I guess a theory hypothesis that a group of transformed individuals creates a transformed collective or transformed society. Do you see it working that way or, or like, are, are there ways that you, 
think about to address it on a systemic level? You know, like where would you lean towards us putting our energy or is it kind of both? How do you do it? <laughs> I actually want to say something about that because yeah. this is, I think that if we address it from a policy perspective, it's absolutely doomed to failure. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely no way we can write a wrong through a law or a policy. It just won't ever happen. And that's what you said, Maurice, when you said, you know, just because abolish we amend, yeah, abolish slavery, segregation, and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. You know, um, that doesn't change anything. It has to be individual and it has to be corporate in the sense that it needs to be corporate from the church. Mm-hmm. And it has to be individual that it's each person's responsibility. But mm-hmm. a secular entity can never change it. Mm-hmm. I think that it has to be both, actually. I think that um, if you, if we're going to like hold on to that, the slave thing, like you abolish slavery and nothing fundamentally changes, like let's hold on to that for just a second as an example. If I, as a white Christian abolitionist, go around saying, okay, the way, the most, the best way to end slavery is to change a bunch of hearts, we're still slaves. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, yeah. The, the timeline for that is far too long. Like we have to be very able and willing to look at who we vote for and the policies that we enact through the lens of what, through the lens of racial justice and reconciliation. And so like when, um, like we have to look at it that way because the policies that we enact, even as a secular nation, they, they have direct impact on individuals. We have to critique and fight for just policy. But that in and of itself is not enough. Like we do have to also be after changing and shaping individual lives and hearts and ways of thinking. Because if, if that doesn't change, you're absolutely right. No amount of policy is going to erase racism because that exists in people's hearts as well as in our policy. So yes, change policy and at the same time work super hard to change the lives of the people around you. For me, I think, and I I think to Matt, you're like, which one should we focus on? I think that we each need to consider what's my burden to bear. Am I a policy trumpeter? Am I, is my primary role to be involved in politics, to be involved in like larger organizations to shape that organization and the way it works and the way it functions? Um, Or is my role going to be to, be more like, for lack of a better word, pastoral or Mm -hmm. um, mentoring and coaching and working with people on the individual level. But no matter which one we think we come to as our primary means of activism, we also have to be engaged in the other. You know what I mean? Like I, Mm. I can't say that I'm about justice and changing the hearts of people if my vote goes goes towards policy that's going to be actively harming people and undoing the individual work that I do. Like it has to be both. It can't be one or the other and they have to be happening simultaneously or else it's like the timeline gets slightly shorter as we do both of those things. And as people are spending their energy in both of those ways. Did you have a thought of, I mean, yeah, did you have a thought about that as well? Or uh, no. Okay. No. Yeah. No, I, I mean that, that makes sense to me. I'm... Well, I, I will say this. Um, when you, 
if you were to say what law or policy has to change, what do you put your finger on? <laughs> so, I mean, let's, but let's let the rubber meet the road on this one. If you say this policy is wrong, this has to change, what is that? Or this law is wrong, what needs to change it? That would probably have been easier to identify 50 years ago <laughs> than now, right? It's a little, and, and that's, a little tougher now, for sure. That, that's, the, that's kind of, you know, if we're going to say these things, yeah. which, I, and this is where I would disagree with you. I think that pursuing policy and law on this one just only causes more division and causes more problems because policies and laws have been um, neutered so much, mm-hmm. you know, compared to way they, where they were horrible and, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, absolutely disgusting in what they said and did. Now you've got this, um, I don't know what we have today. I don't even, maybe just delete the whole thing and start over. <laughs> yeah, that, delete the whole thing and start over. I, I, and that's only slightly flippant. I, I think that what you're saying is part of the problem of um, being an anti-racist right now is that you plant me in slave times, you plant me in segregation, and I can easily point to very specific sure. policies and ways yep. of being that yep. it's like that, dismantle that yep. while yep. working on people's hearts. Yep. But the nature of it is that it, it morphs. It's like, um, it is like, people don't hate me, but it is like a virus, right? You start treating it, you start treating it, and then it it adapts to the treatment, and then it gets trickier to treat, right? And so, racism, do we just need to wear masks? That's the solution. <laughs> just, just, get a, just get an anti-racist mask, and we'll be fine. Um, but it, like, I guess in, I'm such an anti-government person I, that I no, but, no, seriously, this is where it comes. I, in this regard, I think I'm very libertarian on it. Yeah, it's like. Okay, but I think I just thought of a way, and you said a D word, dis, you know, whatever, deconstruct. How about the word defund that's going around right now, so, right? So you got, yeah. there's a system, it's not exactly a law, but it yeah. is a pol- policy procedural way of doing things that maybe yeah. like need some serious work. So um, to finish answering the question, I, um, and even to tap into your libertarian comment, which thank you for that. <laughs> um, I for right now, I couldn't point at one specific thing that needs to change because all of it needs to change. The way we, the way we do school, the way teachers are recruited and trained and taught, that has to change. The way we like defund the police, the way that we militarize and weaponize our police against all of our people, but specifically people of color and black people above most, that has to change. The way that we, um, the way that we allow people to vote and have voice like that has to like pick any one policy in our country and it has to change to be more equitable and inclusive. And, and I think that for, um, but then you look at the breadth of that and ask and ask me, what do I do about it? That's like far too much for me to wrap my head around. How do I do it? So, So I pick my lane and I say, God has given me this to work on and I am going to work on this and I'm going to trust 
that there are other people doing the work in other arenas. And I think that um, mm. the, for, um, for, so you said I'm a libertarian, I'm anti-government, I don't trust what the government does, I don't care what they do, like I- people, Well, that's a bit overstated, but- <laughs> yeah, Sorry, it's, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm anarchist. <laughs> no, Definitely no, no. not yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> Pardon my overgeneralization, <laughs> but, I think, but I think that if if my perspective is that the like spending my time on government stuff is a waste of my time, then I'm not going to do that. Then I am going to spend all of my time working on the individual level, on hearts and minds, and maybe in some of the structures that I participate in. That's not bad. Like I'm not going to sit here and shame you and say you should be more active in government because. If that's not your thing to do, that's not your thing to do. But I, I think that we, we kind of get like, some of the like our power gets broken down when we like splinter off and be like, well, you're not doing anti-racist work the way I am. So you're not actually legit. Like, nope, that's like, we don't need to be divided that way. If our end is the end of white supremacy, the end of racism, the end of like this heinous, whatever is going on right now, then I have to be willing to say, I'm gonna work at it this way because that's my lane to run. And I'm gonna let you run at it in your way and we're gonna hold hands the whole way and we're gonna feed each other information. Like I'm gonna prop you up and support you when you need, your, need to be propped up and supported and you're gonna prop me up and support me when I need that. And like we make a groundswell of movement as we're unifying. And yeah, there are, yeah, we like, it has to be this thing that we're all working at at all the different angles and we're going to meet in the middle at something that looks far more beautiful than the America we're in right now. So what do you say to somebody who says that's a utopian dream? <laughs> to that person, I say, well, depends. And, you, and just so I say, utopia by definition cannot happen. Yeah. You know, but I would say this, that if that person is somebody who cl is claiming to be a follower of Jesus, I would say that that's the utopian dream that we are invited into. Mm -hmm. Back to that prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus invites us to dream for and work for and hope for that utopia yeah. with the recognition that it will not happen until Jesus comes again. So in the meantime, I'm invited to work. I'm invited to labor with God, to be guided by him and shaped and formed by him to help make that kingdom happen. That has been God's um, heart from the very beginning. He mm -hmm. creates Adam and Eve and is like, all right, let's make this garden. Let's work. Let's do, let's make this place beautiful. And that is the work I'm still called into right now. It, and I know full well that it will not happen until the kingdom comes. But that doesn't mean I'm just going to sit on my couch and wait. You know what I mean? Like, that's not what God invites me to. And um, it's in, on that level, it actually is easier to talk to somebody in the, in the kingdom of God about who would say that's a utopia yep. that's not going to happen. Yep. That's, it becomes so much easier. For somebody who is like, I don't do the Christian thing, I have no faith at all in any kind of thing, then yeah, that's, that's utopia and that's what I'm going to spend my life doing. You're free to do whatever you want, right? Like, if you think that's utopia and it's not going to happen and you kind of want to be like, meh, whatever about it, there's nothing I can do to force you. There's nothing I can do to get you to 
um, to agree with me necessarily. I'm, I mean, I'm still gonna have conversations with that person and still like talk to them when opportunity arises about this vision for humanity that is thriving and excellent. But I understand why you wouldn't do it. Like I absolutely understand why somebody who doesn't have like a kingdom mindset would be like, eh, it's never gonna happen. So this is the, what we're talking about in my estimation, is the greatest threat to secularism there possibly can be. It is the greatest uh, insult to to um, evil and um, to Satan that there can be, and that's the body of Christ actually making the the preparing the way for the return of Christ. <laughs> you know, yeah, um, that's the greatest threat. Amen. So how do you, you mean, you work with youth, you know, and you work with mm-hmm. kinds of people really, but at, like in your occupational, um, like how are you teaching them? You know, like what are you teaching people to do to help them find that identity? I call it identity and destiny. You know, who am I? Who has God made me to be? And what has he invited me to do? And with, you know, obviously um, in particular, considering these issues, but really in general in my life, you know, what is my lane? You talk about being in my lane. How do you help people, you know, find that? Yeah. Um, so in my vocation, I'm a pastor. And so when I'm working with my students that way, I think that our ability to do this kind of work, to do this kind of kingdom work, has to start with an understanding of what is the kingdom. If I'm going to work for and pray for and hope for the kingdom come, then I better know what it is that I'm looking for. And so we have to, we get to like study scripture and um, try to understand who God is, not through the lens of this will make me a good person. Cause that's not, I don't know that that's ever been the goal. Well, I don't know that ever, that ever should be the goal. Should have been right, totally. But it is, I need to understand the heart of the guy I call King so that as I'm moving through the world, that's the eyes that I see stuff with. That's the eyes that I interact with every single human being with, because this is how God is asking me to live. This is how he is asking me to represent the kingdom here on earth. And so, um, the it's, I feel like it's just a really subtle shift, but not like how can you be a good person or how can you have a good life? but how can you participate with bringing God's kingdom here on earth? And some of that is might actually end up looking like me being a slightly more moral person, but that's never, ever the goal. And so um, I think it's just that the, it changes, it shifts the lens that we do, that I do the work I do. For real. So can you put any like tangible specifics around the kingdom? Like what does the kingdom look like when you talk about it? <laughs> Uh, not to put you on the spot. I mean, we can just all talk about it, but um, I don't know. Do you have any particular things that you point to, like the characteristics and the qualities of the kingdom of God or of who God is? Yeah. Um, Thanks for asking such an easy question. Yeah. Matt. <laughs> no, it's, it's easy. <laughs> exactly. I haven't. So this is one of my deficiencies is that I don't have like everything memorized always. But I I think about um, 
Isaiah says it, and then Jesus quotes Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because I'm here to set captives free, to heal people, to um, just to restore. Good news to the poor, yeah. Yeah, like that's in the broadest terms possible, that's the kingdom, that we can walk in freedom and health and wholeness and we can be reconciled to each other, right? That, um, but, and that's, but that's really, really broad. So yeah. I know I kind of put you on the spot there. Um, <laughs> I mean, how about the, how about the idea of like, there's an economic, so I've been, I've been studying this a little bit myself mm-hmm. and digging into it. There's this like Genesis one versus Genesis three sort of worldview, yeah. mm-hmm. like this, the economic model of scarcity versus abundance. Yeah. Right. And the idea of identity based on being versus doing or production. Mm-hmm. So when Genesis one, God creates everything and it's like, he blesses it and says, it's good. And just says, be who you are and reproduce and dom, you know, um, not dominate, but <laughs> dominion, you know, have dominion over the earth. So do it right. Like you're talking about the garden, cultivate it, build mm-hmm. culture, all this kind of stuff. But God was present in it. And that created life and abundance. And there was no, there's no worry. There was no need. There was none of that. But then the, the fall, the separation occurs, right? And we start to view ourselves as unworthy and shameful and sinful and tried to hide from God's presence. Like that was the first time that we wanted to keep God out of it. Yeah. And like, we'll just do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that I believe is the mindset that is, well, it is. It's the mindset that permeates humanity, right? And Jesus comes back to restore us back to Genesis one. Mm-hmm. Like God is present in this mm-hmm. and he's restoring all things to the way that he created them to be where there is equality and there's abundance and there's all these things. So I don't know. That's like, does that fit in? Like, how do you, is that? Um, the, <laughs> just like, you're going to shift. Does that help? <laughs> economics. I think it's, it's wrapped up in it. I think the, this, um, that you're right, like this scarcity mindset is we think that if I give up my power and influence, then I won't have any. And that's not necessarily the kingdom mindset. I think yeah, it's certainly right. not scriptural, right? No, no. <laughs> I, um, when we, um, yeah. we, the verse we read at our um, wedding was from Philippians where Paul's talking about Christ giving up of himself and his power to come be with us and to restore humanity by sacrificing himself. Like if I go into my marriage and I'm like, I'm the boss, I'm the Supreme, I'm everything. And you're here to serve me and I can't share anything with you. Like that's not going to last very long. Right. So, um, but then I think that we then, so that's like the, our, American way of thinking both yeah. around race and politic and power, but also around economics. Like everything that I have is, is God's gift to me. Um, scripture tells me that God is a God of abundance and that anything I need, that everything I need is and will be provided for me. But I'm also invited to then turn around and give it all away. Like, to hand it out freely because God's going to hand it right back to me. It's like this circle of like, okay, I'm going to give it out, trusting God to provide for me when I need. And that, that impacts all of the choices that I make and how I live. Like the people that we have living in our house, the way that we give to other folks, like we, we have to, 
yeah, we, I think the scarcity thing has to go and we need to be discipled by God in that rather than by American capitalism. <laughs> right. Like you're saying, it's this upside down idea, right? Yeah. Like to lead by serving, yeah. to, you know, have power by submitting, mm-hmm. to actually live by dying. Yeah. That's the Jesus way, right? And I don't think anybody wants to accept it. So here would be a question to sort of tie it back to our topic is how can, how can and should that play out in our different groups, like in the white community and the black community? And, you know, um, like how can we, I just, what I really always hope to do with this show and with these discussions is put, you know, skin on it for a, a pun, I guess, but like, to, you know, to give it like teeth that we can actually do something with it, you know, and not just have it be ideas. Yeah. Like how can we make it actionable? Um, for the white community in particular, I would say, um, sit at the feet of people who are trying to teach you what race means. Um, that is, and like read and learn and watch and interact with um, all of the information, the plethora of information that is available to you. Um, read the books, watch the documentaries, talk to your people and, and learn like this is what it is, this is its impact, this is how it has shaped me. This is how I participate in it. Like learn this because this, that, the culture that we live in is a culture that tells you that you are powerful and reinforces your power, whether you are like, whether you're aware of it or not, it is enforcing your power. So learn what your power is so mm-hmm. that you can then give it away so that you can divest yourself of power when it is appropriate to do so. And in most cases, it's appropriate to do so. Um, So like do the learning, the listening, so that you can get to the spot of action. Like once you learn, um, I firmly believe that once you learn what racism is, how it works, what its impacts are, it becomes so much easier to see it. And I, I believe that the spirit of God then will can compel us to, to act differently, to give away of the power and to give away of ourselves to, to serve and love others. Like, but it has to start with the listening and the learning because if that doesn't happen, all of the action is like, can, can be just as harmful. Um, yeah, just start. So, so I've got another question to follow that up. What's your, what do you implore for the black community? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think for the, the black community, I think we need to do similar things. Like we, it's easy to know the impact and it's not always, I mean, I'm going to like translate my experience. It's not easy even as a black person to see this, the roots and the systems and the structures. Like I think we grow up with a sense of something's not right. Like I'm impacted in ways that are not really great. Um, so like it's, it's easy to have a sense of, but it's less easy to be able to name. Right. And so um, I think for the black community, it's to be open and willing to walk with brothers and sisters as they're learning and as they're trying new things, um, as they're trying to 
um, divest themselves of power. Like, it's talking about race is really hard and tricky and people say, you're gonna say and do dumb things. Like, it's just a given. Like I've said and done tons of stupid things <laughs> as I'm trying to like do this well. So for, for us, I think that we have to also stay engaged in the conversation and stay engaged in the conversation like moving towards reconciliation. With given the long history of harm, it would be really easy and understandable for black folks to be like, I'm done, I'm just gonna wash my hands of the whole thing and screw white people, y'all can go to hell. Um, right. It's much harder, I think, to remain engaged and open to reconciliation. I think that, um, especially when reconciliation has been used as a weapon against black folks for a long time. Then when, particularly in the church, right? Like the church is like reconciliation and forgiveness. Those are fundamental to our experience of Christianity. And so when I, as a black person, I'm like, these harms, the church is like, Jesus. <laughs> it's, it doesn't allow me to like actually feel the hurt and the suffering and the anger and to set those things down in front of God and let God do the work to heal me and to restore me as a person so that I can then walk into the beauty of his kingdom with all the people. Because like for, for my white folks, the kingdom of God is going to be a very diverse place, right? Like I'm going to be there. Y'all are going to be there. A bunch of shades in between are going to be there. And for my black folks, guess what? Our white friends are gonna be there. And like, we need to be able and willing to be reconciled to them. Not like right now today, before like any of the work has happened to get us to the place of reconciliation. But if we pull out far too early, if we wash our hands of it too early and we're not willing to sit, to stay there, to sit at the Lord's table waiting for people, then like, then we're gonna miss it too. Thank you. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah, that's, that's well said, man. It is, it's hard to think about like, how do you go around preaching forgiveness and abundance and everything to any, to a group of people who does not experience that, you know, it's like, this is not my experience. How do you, and it can just feel like a religious oppression mm -hmm. or whatever. The truth is in there though, but. But I think that like, honestly, I think that we're, we're really, we have to be more comfortable with Jesus's suffering more comfortable of living like in the suffering of Jesus, the suffering of God's people. And to say that that is, that that is real and it's valid and God is there too. Like, yeah, you don't like Israel doesn't exist quite the same way if they don't have 400 years of growing inside the belly of Egypt. Like that was a terrible experience for all of them but they go from being a small people to a large people and like God has work to do to shape them and form them. But the, the suffering is not pleasant and God is at work. God can be at work in it. So I think we can't preach to people the ends, forget the means. We have to preach that God is walking with us through it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Do you have any com any final comments that you would like to share? with our audience? Um, just a reiteration that you, like the work has to keep going. That this is an everyday 
um, very intentional practice to engage in. And it will be, it will stop being sexy sooner than later. And, um, and that's the point where we have to keep doing work, where we have to stay engaged in conversation and stay engaged in learning, stay engaged in work and like trying to build something much more beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Maurice, man, it's, I really appreciate you coming on and it's just great to talk to you. It's been way too long, Yeah, man. but yeah, I love it. Appreciate your insight and your willingness just to share openly and candidly. That's yeah. really helpful for me. And I think for our listeners. Um, yep. Yep. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. And uh, is there any, any way that you would want people to be able to contact you or reach you or anything you would want? And you can say, no, it's fine. But you know, or anything you'd want to point people to as far as resources or anything we can, cause we can list those on our show notes and website. Yeah. Let me, I will, um, I'll send you a few resources that I have found to be helpful and yeah. I, we can stick those in the show notes. If you want to contact me, <laughs> You don't have to say yes to that if you don't want to. It's just a- <laughs> if you want to contact me, I'm sure you could find me on Google. You can, you, you can <laughs> find you in, in Portland, Oregon. Right. Just, <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's not very big. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Walk up and down the streets. Hey, people, people yeah, you guys, me. You guys you know, know Maurice. Yeah. <laughs> you know Sooner or later, somebody's going to say yes. Yeah. yeah for real. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for being part of our show and being uh, part of this um, important issue that we've been discussing for a month now, mm-hmm. a little over a month. And um, we do value your insight and your wisdom and your life experiences. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks for yep. having me. So everybody mm-hmm. check us out on the renegadeatlas.com. Yep. Uh, our Facebook page, Renegade Atlas. What am I forgetting, Matt? Uh, coffee. You can email us. What, yeah. Coffee? Oh, coffee. Coffee. That's true. Yeah. Oh, my god. We goodness. are forgetting about the coffee. We've been really remiss on that during these issues. Yeah, yeah, we do have to prop up Shenandoah Joe. Um, We do ask that you order a pound or 10 from them, right? And you mentioned the promo code Renegade when you check out and they help support our show when you do that. Yeah. I just had a brilliant idea. What's that? We should send our guests a I know, bag of I know. Shannon Dojo coffee. And you know what? This morning I just ordered 10 pounds for myself. Oh, I'm so jealous. So, just, <laughs> so, so I mean. You like coffee, right? I Maurice? Like coffee. Yeah, man. I'm yeah. Portland. It's home of coffee. I know. Right, right. Oh, I'm with you there. Yeah. All right, everybody. Well, thanks so much for listening. God bless you. And you have an amazing day.